everyone. Welcome to the Charvak Podcast. This is your host Kushal Mehra. All right, today's podcast is once again about the Places of Worship Act 1991. This is part two of our chat. Uh, if you have not seen part one, I would recommend that uh, please go and watch it too. And to talk about the Places of Worship Act, as always, Nikhil Mehra. Nikhil, welcome. Hi, Kushal. How are you? I'm always good, buddy. So, Nikhil. एक काम करते हैं आई एम नॉट गोइंग टू गो बॉदर अबाउट रिकैपिंग व्हाट वी डिस्कस्ड इन द फर्स्ट चैट आउटसाइड ऑफ जस्ट मेकिंग पीपल रिमाइंड रिमाइंडिंग देम दैट व्हेनेवर यू यूज द वर्ड्स नॉन रेट्रोग्रेशन प्रिंसिपल एंड इफ दे डोंट अंडरस्टैंड व्हाट दैट मींस दे हैव टू गो एंड वॉच द फर्स्ट वीडियो बिकॉज यू आर गोइंग टू बी यूजिंग दैट वर्ड अ लॉट बिकॉज आई डोंट वॉन्ट अ वेस्ट आर टाइम बिकॉज वी हैव टू मेनी थिंग्स टू कवर इन पार्ट टू सो हैविंग क्लैरिफाइड दैट प्लीज टेक इट ओवर Uh, but right at the outset we can do one clarification of retrogression and non retrogression the okay. issue of non retrogression as a principle arose uh, in relation to the preemptive upholding of the places of worship act by the supreme court in the ram janmabhoomi judgment where they also held that the act embodies a fundamental feature of secularism in india which is non retrogression that is you cannot hark back to old disputes and that what stand settled in 1947 stand settled therefore uh and so this is this is what retrogression and not re- non retrogression mean what we're essentially saying is that the hindu side is engaging in acts of retrogression which means a reversal back to the old positions as they were before demolitions occurred and the act otherwise that is the place of worship act otherwise says that you should not be able to do that Right, so that's that's sort of the broad uh, understanding. But the reason why I think this part two on places of worship act, and I'm finally glad that we're going to have an episode which is which will involve you as much as it will involve me because you know this can't be just me talking all the time. On the you you know so much more about some of this stuff. But during the course of episode one, we had arrived at certain. At, at this idea that while non-retrogression as an absolute principle was unacceptable, total and complete and constant retrogression was also an illogical principle to us. Um, and so we wanted to arrive at some kind of middle ground based on logic, based on principles, and uh, of course based on fairness. Right. So to that end, we had. I, I remember you. I, I actually got a notification for it. on my phone uh you had set up a shorts you do these shorts things right i mean you you set up these mm-hmm. small portions from your podcast and there was a mehra versus mehra portion which yes. related exactly to this issue where you and i were initially started off on opposite sides approaching retrogression non retrogression from opposite sides and then arrived at this sort of centered ground so mm-hmm. today we're really going to try and explore that that bit right um mm. and just in our discussions prior to this we've been talking about how eventually you need a unity of uh, three things spirituality of archaeology and i think it was what was the third one that you that you history mentioned? historical history. evidences historical so when all three combine and occur you have an overriding of non retrogression and so they permit retrogression and so, so may, 
so maybe yeah. i think uh, maybe just give me a moment here maybe i'll explain what i was telling you on the on the on sure, our sure. phone call be- before that so why did i create this trilogy of spirituality historicity and archaeology was that it is a perfect case in the case of the ram janmabhoomi where historically there is ample evidence that there was a consistent exercise of praying there and worshiping and visiting the deity and spirituality involved in terms of people making an effort and consistently going to the temple or fighting for the temple that is the historical bit which is you know uh, there are many books minakshi jain has written a book and there are many other people who have written sporadically all over the place harsh narayan has written a lot of things about uh, ramjan bhumi too you know he was a scholar who was uh, very well versed with persian and multiple other languages now that is the historical bit the spiritual bit is the faith itself that people genuinely have faith in that concept they now uh, this is uh, this has nothing to do with rationality like uh, the the job of a court in my view which is something that i had a deep problem with even in the sabrimala case in many ways is that the court's job is not to decide whether something is rational or not because whether somebody believes in a god or not that is their personal domain the courts have no no business so you know when sometimes say oh this deity what is deity is real is the what i mean what is the point it has nothing to do so when we when i say spirituality is the is the baseline is that do people have faith in the story of that deity do people uh, have uh, attachment to that story and their actions are directly correlated to a belief in that story which is the spiritual domain and as far as the archaeological domain is concerned it's very clear when a disputed case is made when there is a very specific claim being made that underneath this structure whether you call it a mosque whether you call it a church whether you call it a temple lies something other than that which was of another group that can only be proven when you excavate the site and you find artifacts and in the case of the ram janmabhoomi that also overwhelmingly was in favor of the ram janmabhoomi case although i know the courts did not decide it on the basis of that it was primarily a title suit but that is not the nature in the case of the gyanwapi masjid or in the case of the the, the krishna janmabhoomi too now the point i'm trying to make is that when these three come together you create a unique case and i'm not just saying that this is going to be only ayodhya kashi matra it this this could apply in many other cases too but the point is that this there has to be a essential parameter some objective standard that somebody has to lay down now nor is nikhil stating that we are the final authority nor am i stating that we are the final authority when it comes to this but what nikhil and i try trying to do through these uh, discussions and exercises is we are trying to create some baseline where we can measure these things because nikhil is absolutely right in the first discussion nikhil did raise this point that boss if you are going to open up this then you create the slippery slope fallacy you know the, then everything is there then ye bhi ho sakta ye bhi ho sakta i find something anywhere so i just wanted to lay this down and now nikhil i apologize now i'll give it back to you uh no no i think that set it up quite well i just wanted to tell you that as you took the example of ramjan bhumi the judgment itself uh sets out not in express terms the test that we are talking about but required for that test to be met before it would hold in favor of the hindu side right so to that end i'm going to read certain portions of first there is this idea that the ideal that the idol itself is a juristic person 
And so therefore, if an idol exists, that's more than enough. Now, now in the Ranjan Bhumi case, what the court says is the idol. So tomorrow, for example, let's say an idol exists. And somebody, and there have been judgments to this effect. Somebody at the time of death grants a massive bequest to that idol. Some kind of natural event occurs, a storm or a flood or something. And that idol gets broken. Does that mean that the bequest fails? And the answer to that is no. Because what is the embodiment of the idol? The idol only embodies the piety behind the concept behind the idol. Right? And that is what is given juristic personality. The idol, may, the, the actual Pratima, the actual Murti may change many times over, but the piety attached to that particular idol does not. And so therefore the bequest does not fail. So let's be clear about the fact that Merely placing an idol or, or finding an idol somewhere does not, even under Hindu law as it stands, confer some kind of juristic personality to that space, to that place that will then say, because an idol is found over here, this must be a, uh, a, a totally in the ownership and vesting of the idol only. That does not exist as a concept. And I'm glad it doesn't exist because, you know, this is a slightly farcical, but Interesting example that I thought experiment that I kept raising with you from time to time. I have, I have a mandir at home, and if I have followed all the requirements of Pran Pratishthan and established an idol as required by the by by Hindu law by by the faith, and then I invite local people to come from time to time for praying over there, and the idol acquires for at least within my colony, some kind of piety for, for a number of people. And they make it into sort of an annual event where on a particular festival, they will come pray before this idol. Tomorrow, if my house is acquired by the government for some reason, or if I wish to sell my house and demolish and reconstruct, is somebody going to come and say, no, 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 this is owned by the idol? Because the idol was properly established. Right? So these things have to have their own limits. And to that end, it is important to understand that the juristic personality of an idol that makes it capable of owning land, of owning an asset, was it originated, yes, from the Hindu law of the piety reserved for an idol and for, and for the idea behind the idol. But the juristic personality was created by judges so as to simplify the kinds of problems that I'm referring to now. Somebody makes a bequest to an idol. Is that an I request bequest to the idol or is it a bequest to the Shabbat? Those kinds of questions have arisen repeatedly. So the Shabbat will come and go, the idol will not. That was the answer. right? So as long as the Shabbat is in charge of that particular idol, that person as the Shabbat can manage those funds but he cannot manage them if if the if he leaves that Shabbat for some reason or the other. Or if somebody else is appointed as Shabbat. Right? So it, it, it is first and foremost important to understand that merely discovering an idol is insufficient, in my view, of my reading of the law. And so where, for example, these arguments are being raised in cases such as the uh, now hilariously famous Kutub Minar case saying that we have a right of worship. We have discovered this was, they were giant temples. We have discovered idols. That's enough. That is not enough. That's my first step on the judgment of the student. So I'll read a bit of it. Sure. The recognition of the Hindu idol as a legal or juristic person is therefore based on two premises employed by the courts. 
This is after an, a deep analysis of a number of historic judgments leading back all the way to Privy Council and prior. The first is to recognize the pious purpose of the testator as a legal entity capable of holding property in an ideal sense absent the creation of a trust. The second is the merging of the pious purpose itself and the idol which embodies the pious purpose to ensure the fulfillment of the pious purpose. So conceived the Hindu idol is a legal person. The property endowed to pious purpose is owned by the idol as a legal person in an ideal sense. The reason why the court created such legal fictions was to provide a comprehensive, comprehensible legal framework to protect the properties dedicated to pious purposes from external threats as well as internal maladministration. So essentially creating a trust, an entrustment without creating an entrustment. Where the pious purpose necessitated a public trust for the benefit of all devotees, conferring legal personality allowed courts to protect the pious purpose for the benefit of the devotees. Having set out the history and underlying basis of the legal innovation surrounding the conferral Jewish personality of Hindu idols, it becomes necessary to advert to the principal question for us. The present case turns in a significant measure on the answer to the question to the contention heard on behalf of the plaintiffs in suit five, the first and second plaintiffs, Bhagwan, Sri Ram, Virajman, and Asthan, Sri Ram, Janma Bhumi are juristic persons. The first is accepted, the second is not. Right? So Bhagwan. Uh, Sri Ram Virajman is accepted. But why mm -hmm. is it accepted? The oral, for the for the devotees of Lord Ram, the plaintiff in suit 5, Bhagwan Sri Ram Virajman is the embodiment of Lord, Lord Ram and constitutes the resident deity of Ram Janmabhumi. The faith and belief of the Hindu devotees is a matter personal to their conscience and it is not for this court to scrutinize the strength of, the, of their convictions or the rationality of their beliefs beyond a prima facie examine examination to a certain whether such beliefs are held in good faith. This is now, the acknowledgement of the spiritual part that I was talking no, about. No, 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 that's coming. That's coming very much. So it is, right? But now watch what they say. The oral and documentary evidence shows that the Hindu devotees of Lord Ram hold a genuine, long-standing and profound belief in the religious merit attained by offering prayer to Lord Ram at the site they believe to be his birthplace. Exactly the test we're talking about. Yes. 100%. 100%. Right? There is, in this case, in the Ram Janmabhumi case, the archaeological evidence came later, be that as it may. The historical evidence was never in dispute. It was held repeatedly by the courts, both the Allahabad High Court and the Supreme Court, that Hindu worship was maintained throughout. Right? And then this final element of spirituality was added on to that. In any event, these are logical things that flow together. If the spirituality exists and the spirituality is as they say, uh, just to read that again, genuine, long-standing and profound, right? Then it is these natural. These are very important words. Genuine, long-standing and profound. Very profound important belief. words. If these actually exist, then it is absolutely natural that the historical and archaeological evidence will ensue. Because if these, if this spirituality exists, then there will be a practice of that spirituality. And the practicing of that spirituality is what creates the history and the archaeology. So, Nikhil, I have an intervention here, if you don't mind. Now, here the problem could come, again, due to the nature of Hinduism, which is very peculiar. What if there is a continuing practice, but it is not written or encoded somewhere, it is only oral? How does one solve a problem of that kind? I thought I should add that caveat over here. 
Okay, so the opening words of what I just read, the oral and documentary evidence. If in certain circumstances, documentary evidence does not exist, oral evidence exists and it is persistent oral evidence. The problem that you'll face then, which one is this? How do you prove historical or oral evidence if it is not reduced to a document? Exactly. That is the problem. So, so we can talk about this this particular tribe uh, has been practicing something orally. No, no, no. no. And I, how I, we can no, prove no, it no, no, is no, no, by no, no. visitors who spoke about them historically. Let me first clarify first principle point. The difference between saying something is evidenced by oral evidence or by documentary evidence is this. Oral evidence means that there is an oral history being recorded about the piety of that place, right? And that oral history is passed down. And by the passing down of that oral history, certain rituals, certain practices, which become consistent and persistent, are passed down from generation to generation and are practiced, right? You may have a document that records that oral history. That document does not become documentary evidence. It is merely recordal of the oral evidence. Documentary evidence would be where you say a document exists which was the source of this piety. Two different kinds of documentary evidence in that sense. If you want to look at it that way. So what one is a recordal it? documentary evidence. The other is a, is a root documentary evidence. Yeah, so to simplify it further, so I'll give you another example. So Minakshi Jain, ma'am, has written six volumes of, you know, visitors who came to India and spoke about India. I'm just stating it as an example. So what you are trying to say is that if, let's say, Megasthenes came to India, right? Megasthenes came to India and he, in his travel travelogue, wrote, I saw Sati being practiced in India. So that's just Megasthenes stating that. That is what you're trying to explain. Now, that that's is right. different kind that's of right. evidence, right? Okay. That's right. That's right. So Megasthenes' document is only an observational document. It's a statement at best, right? It is not the source of Sati itself. The source of Sati itself may come from one of the Smritis or Shrutis, wherever it comes from. I'm not some, not something I've examined too deeply. right? So, so there are qualitative variances in the document. Now, the problem is if you say there is no documentary evidence at all, how do you prove the historicity of the oral evidence? That's a tougher task. But that's still a question of evidence and not a matter of absolute substantive principle. On a substantive principle, oral evidence should be sufficient to establish the piety. Look, it, mm -hmm. oral evidence is enough to show genuine, long-standing and profound. If you can meet that standard by purely oral evidence, good for you. So, you know, Mina, a good somebody even in the live chat uh, reminded me of this. That Meenakshi Jain, ma'am, she also, in the last time she came on the podcast talking about her book, Flight of Deities. She's like, how did these things happen? How would Hindus remember all these things? And she used the proper word for it. She said civilizational memory. Fair Actually, enough. that is a very good point. Fair enough. And civilizational memory. Look, a court has to be blind to that civilizational memory. It has to be established by a party. How will you establish that? Spoken or, or written is the only ways by which you can do it, right? Uh, let me give you an example. Like So the, the Ram Leela is conducted at uh, a particular site outside of Banaras every year. And if you haven't seen that Ram Leela, I urge everybody to see it. It goes on for a month around the Sarah and culminating in the Sarah. And it is over a huge area of land, several acres, where one portion is delineated as Ayodhya, 
one other portion is delineated as the forest and one other portion is delineated as Lanka and other obvious obvious areas are dedicated based on how the story progresses and over a month that part is done right now how will you prove that this has been going on for hundreds of years somebody has to have recorded it somewhere right you don't have a human being 300 years old to come and tell you it's been happening So if you say only oral evidence, only civilizational memory, there has to be a recordal in some form of civilizational memory. I don't think to a court it will suffice to say that Minakshi Jain comes and testifies and says, we have heard it in every generation. It will be difficult to do that. Mm. You know, what can she say? She can say, my grandmother told me, well, let's say for argument's sake, her grandmother is alive. She comes to court and she says, my grandmother told me. At best, this is all hearsay evidence, right? To the fact but don't, the... You, don't you think then the law actually, in a way, is biased uh, to oral history? Biased against. against. Well, it, see, this is the the law is not biased, for sure. The law says, uh, the substantive principle says you can satisfy with oral history. I am now raising to you a technical problem of how oral evidence is adduced in court, how oral evidence is appreciated. Right, so you can't. The other, the other route you want is one person comes and says, "Now, we in our in our culture, in our traditions, in our family, we are crystal clear that this has been going on for centuries, and uh, this has been this knowledge is passed down to us only, and that should be, that should suffice. I mean, I, that can't possibly suffice if there is a contesting claim from the other side. Right, so this is now a technical problem. This is this is not about Indian law or Hinduism. It is about law and of all sorts." It requires substantive proof. So substantive proof is a technical thing. It's a difficult thing. But I think we're sort of, we're digressing uh, a little bit. And we should sort of proceed further. No, no, it's further. okay. So proceed further. I just wanted to make sure we point clear because it naturally point to come. Right. So again, I'll, I'll sort of go further because I'll read this, read beyond this. Evidence has been led by the plaintiffs to show a long practice of Hindu worship to Lord Ram at the disputed site. Right? So these standards are getting set out. And it is possible the same standards, if you look at the nature of the suit filed in the Gyanwapi Mosque, it's five ladies saying this worship has gone on forever. I want that right to worship again. Right, the same with Krishna Janmabhoomi. But the argument that is rejected in the Ram Janmabhoomi judgment is that the Janmabhoomi itself does not acquire the status of a deity. Right? So it is, there are judgments which say there is one isko, particular case. Nikhil Toda explain kar, why doesn't the Janmabhoomi itself? I, I, I'll explain it. I'll explain it. Uh, in the judgment of, just give me a second, I have to pull that up. Yeah, pull it up. In the meantime, uh, somebody has asked, do Sthan Mahatmas count as written evidence? Now, yes, actually, in my opinion, they could be. So, uh, I mean, I'm not trying to, I'm just trying to 
think of a reason why it would not can be considered as a written evidence look everything that is in writing is written evidence end of story yeah so i'm just saying sthan matme is actually a written evidence now you can say is it primary or secondary that can be debated but i think it is it should be considered as written evidence it could be primary or secondary that that i'm willing to accept there is a judgment to karna hi padega bhai called madura tirupan tiruparan kundram where the where the argument was that the hill upon which a mosque is based is said that hill in itself is a uh, juristic person and it is a public place of worship why because the form of worship that is done is that a parikrama is conducted around that hill i i, I there may be devotees of lord krishna who go to uh, uh go to vrindavan and they will know that a parikrama is done around govind parbat which he had said to have lifted to to save the city from floods right so similar concept here that parikrama is conducted around the around the the hill itself and this was accepted this was accepted that this was a deity unto itself the hill was a deity unto itself right so these circumstances can arise from time to time the, the dis- difference i'm trying to draw is that you do not come to ram janmabhoomi to pray to the land you go to ram janmabhoomi or krishna janmabhoomi because this is where the birth of the lord took place so you're praying to the lord itself mm-hmm. that is what the court held eventually so so that means in every case there is has to be a unique reasoning and its own logic that's right. internally that's right. that's right so when this otherwise what are we fighting here what are, what are we trying to do this whatsappification of all logic right which is which is what we're up against which is somebody coming and saying we have the right to take every single property back that i'm opposed to because i'm sorry if you cannot establish what these tests the, the very tests that we spoke of then your motivation is not a motivation of piety towards any particular idol or any particular tenet of your faith yours mm-hmm. is a hate driven idea that says everybody is an invader at that point in time remains an invader and whatever they have built must be undone and we must be restored as a, and the next step to that will obviously have to be that anybody who now complies with the religious tenets of their invader is also an outsider and an invader that i will not accept and with so you the test these tests are very good at you know in a sense dood ka dood aur pani ka pani karne hmm test out what the motivations of separate individuals are your negative hatefilled motivation will not be given voice in the law but your positive piety based motivation will be and the left falls into this proper problem uh, into this into this fallacy as well because what the left often does which critical left of of these kinds of movements of ram janm bhoomi for example of krishna janm bhoomi is they try to conflate exactly these two different but different and distinct motivations into one my pious motivation my positive pious motivation towards the existing long standing genuine and profound spirituality i have for a deity who has existed in that area forever and ever and towards whom that 
piety has been expressed by Hindus for centuries at end is conflated with being, no, but this is Muslim hate. You cannot hmm. conflate the first or the second. And that is why they fail to answer this argument. The first argument. Yeah, that's a fair point. Right. So this this is where that sort of that is the gap that you and I are trying to sort of bridge over here. Don't look mm -hmm. at merely because we go and say in episode one that non-retrogression is a rubbish principle. And by the way, Ismail Faruqi, I'll cover a bit of that Ismail Faruqi judgment as well. Ismail Faruqi specifically uh, held against one of the acts passed in 1993 by the UP state government by which they acquired that whole area where the act said, now we ho now we say that all suits that are pending Kaur Amnan Mumi abate. The answer the court turns back and says is, no, if you were to do that, you negate the rule of law. So if that answer can be given in Ismail Faruqi, qua that UP state act, the same answer can be given qua the place of worship act. You are negating the rule of law. Absolutely. Right? So, what is our purpose here? Yes, you are negating the rule of law, but the place of worship act does also have a reasonable basis, a reasonable logic to it. What is that reasonable logic? That is what we're trying to discover here. Because you remember in that first episode, I had read parts of the statement of objects and reasons. I had read the statute in extenso. And, you know, it, it may have seemed ham-handed at times in the way and manner of execution, indisputably, legally, social, societally, in every sense is ham-handed. Okay, but the basis of saying we don't want every battle to be refought. You're not... You may go back to sleep in your dreams and refight Panipat in your mind every time, but I'm sorry, it cannot be done in real life. It can't be done. We cannot allow that to go on. Right? So that, have if to that draw a line somewhere. If that is the intention of the act, the purpose today was where, where is the line being drawn? And I'm reading the line being drawn from the Ram Janmubi Right? And why does Krishna Janmubi survive? Exactly what I was telling you. Or Gyanvapi survive. They will say, this was the same piety. The same tests are met in those cases. And the character changes. Ram Janbhumi is a title judgment, is a title suit. Krishna Janbhumi will also probably be a title suit. But Gyanvapi is a, a right to a right to worship suit. Hmm. Got it. And Gyanvapi for that reason will have where where it will be very interesting is if that shivling is actually proved to be one of the 12 Jyotirlings. On physical examination, on archaeological. This is where our, our second limb comes in. Archaeological evidence. Mm -hmm. If the archaeological... And, and I suspect that the archaeological evidence is far more important in uh, Gyanvapi than it was ever required in Ramjan Bhumi. I agree on that Ram, too. Ramjan Bhumi proceeded on spiritual power. Persistence of spirituality. It mm -hmm. actually mattered very little whether there was a temple, wasn't a temple. In fact, the existence of an earlier temple was also only necessitated to establish the spirituality all over again to say, because there was a temple, there was always spirituality. Mm -hmm. That was not to say that because a temple existed, the creation of a mosque is a act of trespass and taking. That's not the argument. The argument is because a temple existed, the piety existed. Hmm. Right? That is, and that helped to establish title. Now, 
Gyanwapi is a case in which you are not suing for title of the land. You're su suing for place of worship, for, for the right of worship. And that right of worship can now only emerge, in fact, if the idol exists, the Jyotirling exists. And its status as a as one of the 12 Jyotirlings is, in fact, established. So that archaeological evidence, I suspect, in Gyanwapi is much more important. And where archaeological evidence is involved, digging is involved. And where digging is involved, existing structures get damaged. Hmm. So you may well arrive, you may well arrive at a situation in Gyanwapi where what was done in 1992 to the Babri Masjid will have to be done by a court order in Gyanwapi. Not to the same extent of demolition, but to some damage being done there. Well, it is what it is. It is what it is. That's right. But again, so what we've been discussing, what we did, what we discussed as sort of a via media in the first. But for first episodes on Places of Worship Act, in a sense, I'm saying that the legal basis for that notion already exists. Hmm. And nothing short of that legal notion should be enough to satisfy. You know, even these claims that are coming up from times, like, conduct an archaeological survey in X or Y or Z. Hmm. So what if you find an idol? So what? Where is the persistent spirituality? Where is the historicity? Mm. Do not use the archaeology to circumvent everything and do not use the spirituality to circumvent everything either. You will need all three to fit together. So Gyanwapi on pure spirituality, you may not be able to. Mm. You need the archaeology to back you up. In other places, the mere archaeology, even if it discovers something, you cannot establish an existing spirituality and the historicity of the spirituality. You can't find it. Mm -hmm. And this is why, this is where to me the argument of othering actually has some role here. If you do not follow these principles, if you do not do it in this manner, elevate your claim to that height. Then in my view, your motivation is the othering of Muslims. It is not the assertion of your piety. And it is mm. this, this is why maintaining these motivations, whether it is in on the legal side or on the political side, is absolutely crucial. Because otherwise, so effectively, this... what you're saying is we are going to do an effect. We are effectively going to go to civil war over our historicity, over our history. Yeah, yeah, but this is a very tricky issue about othering. Is because you're dealing with a faith system that other that, that has othering inbuilt in it. So it's a very complex issue. All faith systems to a degree have othering built in it. You know, there are sects within Hinduism that will not recognize other sects, that will not recognize other gods. That, that happens, Vishal, that's a part of it. I understand where you're, where you're coming from on this. Yeah, but there is but, othering and then there is othering on steroids. I, I totally get that. But what I'm trying to establish is they are today the incumbent. Right? Be clear about this. A mosque exists. You can only get past the incumbent if you're using legal and civilizational methods, civil rule of law methods and legal methods. If you're using those and these standards have to be met. Otherwise, what the hell? Go and smash everything up. What do you think you're going to smash up and, obviously, and rediscover? Obviously, the, the you only reason we are... But you lose the yeah, obviously, you. the only reason you and I are doing this exercise of you know, busting our brains and trying to come up with a logical system where 
you know, a lot of these cases can be solved and a lot of healing. The main aim behind this is we want societal healing because there is no truth and reconciliation or healing until unless some, you know, actually objective standard is created. So, so I understand where you're coming back. But okay, let's go I really like that the objective standard that we are talking about, it creates a natural, like I'm repeating obviously, creates that natural uh, test of the motivation of the challenger. That's, mm-hmm. I think it's a very important test to have. Mm-hmm. Right, so I wanted to cover on Ismail Farooqi's judgment is quite interesting. Uh, I, I sort of adverted to the fact that so there are five judges in the Ismail Faruqi judgment. This challenged, in effect, the acquisition of certain area at Ayodhya Act 1993. As per Section 4.3, because I mean, and this is sort of the other part of Places of Worship Act, right? Where we had discussed that there is an abatement of the right to sue. And I said that this sort of falls flat. I was surprised in my review again this time that so yeah, it is my my view. I, someone may disagree with me and I'm certain that the draftsman will definitely disagree with me. But I don't think any of the petitions that are filed challenging the Places of Worship Act do a comprehensive enough job. Not in my eyes. Mm-hmm. I, they, their, their lack of proper reliance on Ismail Farooqi surprises me. Quite strictly surprises me. Uh, Section 4.3 of this act did exactly what the Places of Worship Act did. Which is that all suits pertaining to the Ramjan Bhumi will abate. Hmm. Right? But there are certain motivations. That I'll bring that out later. Which is always politics around the law. Right? I mean, it's, it's always something there. I'll bring that out. So be it. And now you have five judges sitting. There's a majority of three judges. There's a minority of two judges. Let me just first set out the majority says section 4.3, 4 subclause 3, which says the suits will abate is definitely unconstitutional. Mm. The minority also says it is definitely unconstitutional. So on the issue of unconstitutionality of a provision that says suits cannot be filed where your cause of action cannot be asserted, there is a unanimity across five judges that this is completely unconstitutional. Step one. Interesting. Right? However, on the power of acquisition, on the power of, uh, on what the various other provisions of the Act, the majority said the, these provisions can survive a challenge. And since Section 4.3 is what we call a severable, that is, it can be removed without altering the nature of the act, section 4.3 will stand deleted from the rest of the act and the act otherwise survives. The minority says no, various other sections are also wrong. They create effectively a benefit to the Hindu side that the Muslim side does not get and therefore they are unequal and biased and therefore they go. Mm-hmm. The minority doesn't now matter because majority opinion matters. right? But this is of significance as I pointed out. Like the exhaustion of or the extinguishment of a cause of action that has naturally arisen in law cannot Mm -hmm. be done even by parliament. 
right? And the interesting thing was that, in a sense, when the courts were holding Section 4.3 to be unconstitutional, they were doing so mindful of the fact that if they were to say Section 4.3 is constitutional, then the loser is actually the Muslim side. Because they had a mosque and now it's gone and now they have no right to claim possession. Mm -hmm. Right? So because the Muslim side were going to lose what is, in my view, as valuable a right as Hindu sides possessed even then, in that case, and do possess in certain other cases now. That right... The court looks at it and says, we cannot possibly, conscionably extinguish this right, this cause of action. This must see its day in court. Hmm. Let's right. see what the courts say to something like that. So, section four, so based on this judgment, based on, you know, a general reading of, they, they, there are a number of statutes, not in this context. But in any context, that is. The bankruptcy code, for example, it bars certain kind of legal proceedings. The old Sikh Industrial Companies Act used to put a permanent stay on proceedings and bar certain kinds of proceedings. There are many tenancy acts that say no suit will lie. Right? All of those courts have always interpreted to say these provisions can only survive constitutional muster if we then hold that you have the right to approach the High Court and the Supreme Court and writ independently. You cannot take away judicial review. So, to that end, I find that the Places of Worship Act, it simply cannot survive on a constitutional, on a, on a test of constitutionality. On this one provision alone. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's basically... I don't know. I'm trying to use the most charitable words for that act. It's just a dhoka on uh, the society. That's all. I don't know what else to say. It's just one reads the act and one reads the intent behind it. Uh, you know, you can be charitable on the intent, but the act, the way it's designed, I mean, it just makes no sense. So, I'll read a very interesting paragraph from Ismail Faruqi. Just to point out that while this worked out to the benefit of the Hindu side, and it and if you and why it will do that is because if you establish your case to that high standard that we have talked about, you will always win. You cannot beat that standard. That standard is a gold standard as far as I'm concerned in law. You beat everything and anything. Right? But here I'm gonna read this para because this was considered to be more in protection of Muslims. Even as Ayodhya is said to be of particular significance to the Hindus as a place of pilgrimage because of the ancient belief that Lord Ram was born there, the mosque was of significance for the Muslim community as an ancient mosque built by Mir Baki in 1528 AD. As a mosque, it was a religious place of worship by, by the Muslims. This indicates the comparative significance of the disputed site to the two communities and also the impact of acquisition is equally on the right uh, on the right and interest of the Hindu community. So there's a balancing. Therefore, the argument that the statute as a whole, not merely Section 7 thereof, is anti-secular being slanted in favor of the Hindus and against the Muslims cannot be accepted. Right? 
what was your argument in relation to so this argument of comparative hardship is brought in right why do i bring this up to raise exactly the point you made in the first podcast that the places mm-hmm. of worship act shuts out only one side yeah right so the same argument can come in into the into a challenge of the places of worship act and say you are effectively only penalizing hindus here. Mm-hmm. but that pretty much is the places of worship act it's just one sided whether we like to admit to it or not i mean i know a section of this country will not admit to it but this places of worship act is literally that it just creates a, a standard where only one side is kind of shut down and told to just <coughs> shut up and obey in in the, in the course of this uh, on the concept of worship for us right the, the right of worship this is what the court mm-hmm. says article 25 does not contain any reference to property unlike article 26 of the constitution the right to practice profess and propagate religion guaranteed under article 25 of the constitution does not necessarily include and necessarily include the right to acquire or own or possess property In other words, if a temple or a mosque never existed, you would still have Article Twenty Five. It would still work. Similarly, this right does not extend to the right of worship at any and every place of worship, so that any hindrance to worship at a particular place per se may infringe upon the religion religious freedom guaranteed under Article Twenty Five and Twenty Six of the Constitution. This is what we are talking about. So. again i'm coming back to the point that the standards that we are that we've discussed that we've spoken about they're in the law already they're in our case law already they're in our judgments already i'll read the sentence again similarly the right does not extend to the right of worship at any and every place of worship so that any hindrance to worship at a particular place per se may infringe the religious freedom guaranteed by article 25 and 26 of the constitution the protection under 25 and 26 to religious practice in which forms an essential and integral part of the religion <laughs> back to our essential religious practice yeah a practice it, may it, be a it's almost practice. as if we cannot get out of it yeah a practice may be a religious practice but not an essential and integral part of the practice of that religion while offer of prayer or worship is a religious practice its offering on every location where such prayer can be offered would not be an essential or integral part of such religious practice unless the place has a particular significance for that religion so as to form an essential or integral part thereof coming back to our test again this is a very sensible provision a very sensible sentence so please don't go and come and tell me taj mahal was tejomahal <laughs> you have no evidence of it you know historicity of it you have no archaeological evidence you can't even establish any piety you want to come and say oh those rooms are locked if i open the room there's a idol over there therefore please give it to the him <laughs> the best room kyun nahi kholte aisa kya chupa ke rakha hai room mein room kyun nahi kholte to main keh raha na so ye bewakoofiyan band karni padengi nahi hoti na hamare se places of worship of any religion having particular significance for that religion to make it an essential or integral part of the religion stand on a different footing and have to be treated differently and more reverentially i think this is a sound principle this is why i was during our first podcast i was talking about how not every mosque is also the same 
Hazratbal Mosque, which contains the hair, or said to contain the hair of Muhammad, will have a separate reverential place. You know, a lot of these dargahs will have a different status to the ordinary masjid anywhere and everywhere. And why were these arguments raised in this case? Because the first argument raised was, masjid being a place of worship, you cannot acquire it. State cannot acquire it. To which the court says, forget about all of this. State can acquire anything. Hmm. Your right state to is almighty. Your yeah, right to worship is not going to trample upon the state's overarching massive powers of eminent domain. Powers of eminent mm-hmm. domain, that is the power to acquire in public interest, is only trammeled by the compensatory rules that come with it. That you mm-hmm. must pay due compensation, so on and so forth. Right? So, you know, what, what I'm what I sort of wanted to drive at and repeatedly drive at is I think the Places of Worship Act has to go. It should be struck down for the reason that it compels. We've actually discussed two reasons today. One is that it extinguishes the right to sue and so therefore is against the rule of law, uh, the enforcement of rule of law. You cannot literally extinguish causes of action in this manner that that naturally arise, especially when that cause of action is a constitutional fundamental right. Correct? And the second is that this imbalance argument, that this comparative hardship argument that the court was happy to look at in the case of Ramjan Bhumi and say, well, you know, the act and the acquisition is fine because it gives comparative hardship to both. And why were they willing to accept that? This act gets passed, this uh, acquisition of certain area at Ayodhya Act, this gets passed on 7 January 1993. So what it does is it freezes the status quo as of 7 93 and after the demolition, prayers by the Hindu side were also extremely limited. So what this did was actually, the court said, prior to 92, Hindus were praying in a larger area of the mosque. And after the passing of the act, they are in fact praying in a much smaller area. So the interim orders being frozen at 7193 actually balances things out because the Hindus have also lost and you have also lost. Who is the winner? At that moment, eventually the Hindus won, right? I mean, I don't think there's that. That's the question now. But at that moment in time, that is what a freezing looked like. And that is what allowed for the ASI to step in also and start digging. Yeah, and especially in the case of Gyanwapi and Krishna Janmabhumi, so ASI ka role itna zada hone wala hai, which is why they are very perturbed now. Because yeah, in the case of Krishna Janmabhumi and Gyanwapi, how can you say the case is not here? It is so, and you know, it's like glaring on your face. Ki ha hai, bol kya karna hai, ha hai. I like look at the motifs. Anybody who understands basic level archaeology will know what has happened there. No, no, I, I accept that. I accept that. But this is why it's important that don't don't overplay the archaeology. Just coming back to what you're saying, what we've been discussing from the start, right? The archaeology matters, no doubt. Right? Mm. But there will be a lot of temples that have been destroyed and mosques have been built or something else has been built. Or for all I know, a, a building, a, a, a secular building stands upon them today. Right? The, archae- the archaeology will not save those temples. Right? What saves Krishna Janabhumi and Gyanwapi is that even after you destroyed it, the spiritualism did not disappear. And the yes. persistence it's of the, the spiritualism. Combination. Yeah. That, it's, so it's always got to be that balance. 
It's always got to mm-hmm. be. So when you talk of the language of it's an undeniable case, please don't ever talk of it as being merely from the archaeological side. The archaeological side is only a buttress. As everything is only a buttress. But the core root for me is always the spirituality. I think. If the spirituality yeah. doesn't exist, the archaeology does not matter. The history doesn't yeah. matter. So in fact, the spirituality sets the interest, the archaeology and the history gives the evidence and bolsters it. And then when they are all in combination, the case is rock solid. No, and, and to this end, you know, it's a, I, I was really, I wanted to develop on this a little bit more that time. I didn't, I thought about it quite a bit and some sort of rough uh, definitions that I sort of worked with. The, the right that is asserted is not a right to pray. It is a right to worship. When I read these judgments, when I read these paragraphs, please notice that the court distinctly uses these two words, not interchangeably. Hmm. The, the words are always used together, prayer or worship. This is not a tautology. It's not meant to be a repetition. No, no, they are distinct features, separate right. features. And so one definition I've seen is prayer is primarily a vehicle for communicating with God. That's an entreaty to God. It's a plea to God and allowing him to communicate with you. Worship is primarily an action focused on glorifying God. Right? On deepening your faith as it were. And that is why in the same moment you can have both prayer and worship. But you could also be completely distinct. And have only the prayer or only worship. Right? In one sentence, you seek blessings from God. In the other, you glorify God. You've done a prayer and a worship. Mm-hmm. But worship acquires greater significance because the glorification must be done at a particular place. And that place in Krishna Janmumi, that glorification, that worship can only be done where the, where, where the Lord was born. Right? That is why the right to the right to worship has some teeth in that case. Yanwapi, if you find the Jyotirling, the right to worship has some teeth in that case. Hmm. Because the worship is pertaining to a, uh, a deity of which there is undoubted spiritual significance. Mm-hmm. Got it. You know what? I, let's see if the questions cause anything else to emerge. I think this is enough for now. We've covered places of worship now, I think. And okay, chalo. so I, I'll, I'll start asking the questions. So, uh, are, there, question are there many? No, four or five. So, four is quite a lot. Four or maybe we'll discover a new way of looking at things as well. Okay, so this is for both of us, but you can start. What are your thoughts on the ongoing litig- uh, ongoing? What are your thoughts on the going non-litigation way around Kashi Mathura by communities? Would it not be truly reconciliatory and also make some Hindu argument toothless that we need to go searching every mosque? No, he's, he's completely correct. He's in fact saying exactly what I was saying at the start of place. But he's whoever this person is, he or she, whoever or, or it or they, whoever they are, they are. They've hit the nail on the head. I, what was my first criticism, criticism of the Places of Worship Act, Kushal? Hmm. It was that you, when, you, when you come up with bullshit legal solutions for issues that are genuinely in the political domain, you end up with dead letter laws. 
And what this person is saying is, why not go the non-litigation way? That's what he says, right? Going the non-litigation way to find a solution and create the truth and reconciliation that you kept talking about, Pushar. And in fact, on this certain Ayodhya, acquisition of certain area in Ayodhya Act, the state was unabashed in their argument before the Supreme Court that their finding, that the president made a special reference under Article 143 of the Constitution, asking about the legality of everything in this act. And they had actually said, once we get your answers to the questions we pose, that gives us a negotiation framework from which we can work politically. The court says we are not meant for this purpose. We are rejecting the reference. We are not answering any of the questions. Hmm. Right? But there was therefore that cognition that maybe this needs to be better dealt with in the political domain. What did the Supreme Court try and do in Ram Janbhumi? Before they even went to the hearings and determination, they did an extensive period of mediation. Solve this amongst yourselves first. So what this person is saying is, is a very good idea. It's just that it is very difficult to pinpoint who is, who will be a representative on which side. So you're talking about a community-based arbitration. Like uh, sometimes in India, because the courts are clogged all the time, there are these quote-unquote uh, marriage counseling arbitrations where if you have to divorce or not, communities sit and there are both appointees and they talk about it. That sort of a situation. Okay, na? Do the panchayati. All of these are just fancy words. Get down to it, talk to each other, do a panchayati, solve the problem. But problem and why it doesn't work and why it wouldn't have worked in Ram Janbhumi also was these are all or nothing battles. Both sides want all. And they will not yield an inch. If they, however, can arrive at some kind of negotiated settlement, that would be perfect. Take the, take the cases out of court. You might, and this person is absolutely correct in observing. And if you go through that kind of political process, you possibly already go through the steps of truth and reconciliation. So I think it's a very sharp question. It's a good question. All right. Next one is, how about those places where Hindus were forcefully not allowed to worship and due to demographic changes around the surrounding region, devotees finally stopped visiting that place? Example, Adina Mosque. This is a very good question too. Excellent question. Hey, confusion. No, no. I just so demographic. So let's just formulate this. Adina Mosque. Can you can you give me some background on this? Well, so I uh, forget the Adina Mosque. I will draw a hypothetical draw. Karke deta, hai? Uh, let's say there is a case where the complete demography of a change has changed. But uh, West Bengal, mein, Malda district, mein Adina Mosque. Hai, to be very honest, Malda ke andar ek mosque is called Adina Mosque. Now the thing is that when a place's demography changes, that the people's memory changes because the whole demography has changed. तो उस केस में आपकी एक्टिव वर्शिपिंग का केस नहीं है तो उस उन प्रॉपर्टीज का क्या करें आई थिंक दैट्स व्हाट द फर्स्ट एज फॉर मी द टेस्ट फेल्स 
I would at least have to show that there were attempts nonetheless made to try and access the space, to try and pray there. There were riots that happened or some fights that happened or some FIRs were registered. Something to show that we kept attempting. Yeah, but see, Nikhil, you have to understand when a demography of a change changes, like in Kashmir. uh, Demographic changes, cultural changes, these are modern realities, right? They were also ancient realities. When this happened, things changed. Yeah, but like Kashmir, for example, is 98% Muslim. You cannot claim a vested right if you yielded entirely. Hmm. No, I hear you. I, I kind of understand also what you're saying. No, but, but explain this to me. I, I might have another solution here. Uh, so, Adina Mosque was built upon a temple or broke uh, broke a temple and was built upon? How, what what I, happened here? Like, look, they say Adina Mosque was built by Sikandar Shah. He was the second thinking, second Sultan Tha Ilyas Nisrika. Oh. Now, I don't know the exact de- de- details of the mosque. I just remember the basic ones. Abhi uske upar bhi ye hai. Um, claim hai ki nahi hai, ko itna pata nahi hai, to be very honest but i am telling you where it is the adina mosque i, I understand I that so if you've now not been able to sustain piety towards the deity there you've not maintained historicity or archaeology or more importantly the spiritual element has waned or weakened or not been persisted with then i don't think you can make a claim yeah, honestly, and uh, what uh, pretty much this says is demography is destiny. Like, if your demography no, no, changes, your destiny Demography changes. is destiny, Kushal, but demography, you could have a period of time. So, this is an older thing, right? So, this is some, I'm assuming somewhere in the 18th century, this demolition would have occurred. I don't uh, know the exact date, so I will not comment. On it. It's a 13, th- no, 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 a mosque, mosque was bought time ago. Mosque, so then bhi time from 1300 down to now, you are not praying there. Yeah, no I agree. Prayer. I think the Adina Mosque example is a bad example. I'm actually, I think the person who asked the question gave a very bad example. Then, then let me, let me put it differently. What if, what if we were to come up? Uh, actually, no, these are historical examples. Yeah, I think this is the way it goes. And not only, see, I think the ideal example would have been the case of Kashmir. In the case of Kashmir, we do know there are certain temples, there are certain places that were actively destroyed and converted and all that. And there is a history and the demography has changed. So Kashmir, I think, is a much better situation. I, I think Kashmir is a, is a sui generis proposition. It's a different proposition. It's a different kind of example to anything. Uh, you cannot... There is a good and cogent and sound, clear reason for the absence of historicity there. Right, so the test the the test becomes unfair. So I think Kashmir would stand apart. It's different. Hmm. Okay. All right. So okay, this is another question someone has asked. What happens in a case like the Temple Mount, where all three claims are part of written history? How would such a case be approached hypothetically? It's a very good question. Tino ka claim hai ki hamara udhar hai aur hamare paas history hai. I think it would have to be acknowledgement of all three claims. It only comes down to how you delineate areas. But 
पहले किसी का भी आया हो आज जब मैं एडजुडिकेट कर रहा हूं मुझे ये दिख रहा है कि तीनों की प्रदर्शन है ना वी क्रिएट अ न्यू रिलीजन विच ऑल थ्री हैव टू फॉलो ओनली सोल्यूशन आई थिंक इंडिया में अगर कोई जज होएगा ना वो रिलीजन भी बना देगा कुछ कुछ भी भी हो हो सकता इंडियन इंडियन कचहरी में बोलेगा बोलेगा if it's used for uh, your office is a secular building your home is a secular building so it's for a secular purpose yeah so the nature of the building is basically decided by the purpose for the for which the building is conducted right. temple is not a secular space right uh, a mosque is not a secular space but an office is a secular space yeah okay one more question nikhil um very interestingly i had shared a uh, an interview with an ex supreme court judge justice dharmadikari yesterday on my twitter timeline uh, and he spoke about how you know he only was on the bench for 3 3 and a half years and didn't get to do what he wanted to do wasn't part of in our constitution benches but one of the judgments he spoke about was you know we i did pass he says this i did pass one judgment that related to restriction on food practices but that was because it was haridwar because haridwar by its own name and by its status is the doorway to god in places like haridwar you can have these special legislation so you never know i mean i am only trying to point out that there is some precedent for that kind of treatment as well but it is very very difficult in my view to say that because varanasi is of significance no other religion can exist there hmm I think the problem with uh, considering Varanasi as evidence of that, right, creates a huge slippery slope problem. Then again, how many structures inside Varanasi? Why only the Gyanvapi one? Why not others? It creates so many second-order and third-order problems. That is the problem in my eyes. You know, and 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 inherently the the principal second-order problem, third-order problem it creates is I'm sorry, but it creates a hierarchy of citizenship. Hmm. a hierarchy yeah. of citizens rights and you cannot have that yeah basically you're creating an entire city which says this is only for one type hindu, of people not for others this is hindu if you are not hindu you your rights here are much lesser than what there anywhere else that hierarchy you can't do that you can't do that in a democracy and I, at least i would not support something like that yeah so do you think the parliament can actually amend the plate this is be my last question before we wrap it up because i wanted to keep it for the end uh, do you think the parliament should repeal the P- places of worship act or the parliament should amend the places of worship act either amend or hey, amend so they they can amend to to include uh, the mehra and mehra test and yes. make it a part of the places of worship act and make it much more sensible legislation in that sense then that mm-hmm. would be a good amendment uh 
although I'm being extremely facetious when I call it the Mera and Mera test because as I read to you, the test already exists in Indian law everywhere. I know. How much do you claim it? Too bad. The M&M test. The M&M test, three-pronged three test can be made into a part of the law, can be an amendment to the Basel Worship Act. And that will, yeah. uh, that should be a good reconciliatory route because the Muslim side should then feel confident that the majority of these places are safe. Mm-hmm. And I think that would lead to genuine truth and reconciliation in our society where eventually both the sides will be like, huh, now we have a, you know, um, a baseline with which both sides can work and the Muslim side will also feel safe. And, and, and also the idea that one side will have to admit that there were excesses committed against extremely pious religious structures in the name of domination. Right? And the other will have to admit that they can't go and make the same mistake now. That has been made by invaders in the past. This is the this is the slippery slope, right? You oppose non-retrogression, that's perfectly fine. But if you go knee-deep into retrogression, then you are becoming the new invader. You can't become that. Hmm. All right, Chal, yaar. we'll wrap it up. Uh, uh, so, as always, I am, buddy, I'm very impressed. This is the shortest podcast ever. Uh, I'm exceptionally <laughs> impressed. One hour, 10 minutes. I mean, I, I 7.30 p.m. podcast. I'm getting done at a reasonable time for dinner. I'm astonished. Yeah, so uh, t- today, I'll give you a little bit of a break. I'll give you a little bit of a break. I'll give you a little bit of a all right guys we'll wrap today's discussion up but before uh, i wrap it up uh i'll just leave a few thoughts in your mind the aim of this two-pronged discussion was and whatever i do uh, with nikhil is we always try to present concepts to you from a legal perspective from a philosophical perspective but nowhere do we claim that we have figured everything out but the aim of this two-part series was to make everyone think rationally or based on first principles that you know that's the only way forward we are not claiming we have all the answers not nikhil is not claiming that nor am i claiming that but what we are trying to do what we are trying to attempt through this effort is that we are showcasing a way that we can solve this conundrum where i think the hindus have a valid case and the muslims also have some concerns which are valid if we can find a way out of this and we have tried to provide a baseline Maybe we can move forward as a country. If you guys find anything that you have heard here and you might want to add, in the description of the podcast, you'll find Nikhil's Twitter handle. That's the best place to get in touch with Nikhil. Go and tweet it out to him. Uh, Nikhil is very open to suggestions and inputs. So please go and state it to him. With me, you know how to contact me. I don't need to say that. We'll wrap today's discussion on that note. Uh, Please subscribe to the channel. Like the video. Leave your comments over here. You can become a member on YouTube or on Patreon, buy the merch or send your donations or UPI. I'll see you next time. Until then, take care. Bye-bye.